Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast should not be construed as a provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. On today's episode, I'm joined by Christopher Mata, co-founder of Crescent Crypto. Chris, it's great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Josh. Excited to be here. So can you give me a bit of a background on yourself and what you did before crypto? And qu- quick disclaimer before I continue, I meant to say former co-founder of Crescent Crypto, but <laughs> but let, let's right. jump in. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, so I actually worked in asset management at Goldman Sachs um, for the entirety of the beginning of my career after I graduated from college. Um, specifically, I was on uh, a team called the Goldman Sachs Trust Company and Philanthropy Fund. And really what we did was we managed multi-asset class portfolios for foundations, high net worth individuals, uh, states, and other small uh, institutional investors. The philanthropy fund is is what's called the donor-advised fund. Um, So it's kind of an alternative to managing a foundation. So a lot of foundations um, would look towards using something like the philanthropy fund as as a lower cost option because managing a foundation is expensive. Um, You have to have obviously a whole team of people and an investment team outsourcing that to someone like Goldman um, could, could reduce uh, costs drastically. And that was really Goldman's whole pitch was this outsource CIO model. Um, and, and so um, I spent a lot of time selling that product to wealth managers uh, who, um, who would then talk to their clients and try and get them bought into to unwinding their foundation and moving it onto that platform. Uh, and that included, you know, we provided multi-asset class portfolios um, for those investors, investing in across everything, fixed income, you know, domestic international equities, emerging markets, uh, high yield alternatives like hedge funds, real estate, private equity, et cetera. And so what was your first interaction with crypto uh, and, and the first time you realized you wanted to pursue a, you know, a full-time career in the, in the space? Yeah, I, it's funny. I've been on Reddit for like over 10 years now, uh, mostly a, a lurker. Uh, but uh, Reddit was obviously a huge hotspot for the, for the Bitcoin community in the early days and, and even till today um, for, for the whole crypto space. So the first time I really interacted with, with Bitcoin was through Reddit. Um, and it was honestly, I wrote it off, I think, as most people do. It, it was kind of a ridiculous community. That was pretty hilarious. Lots of great memes um, and and about magic internet money um, with their li- little wizard, you know, the little wizard cartoon. Um, yep, so yep. You know, I I started I started reading about it through there. Uh, I I didn't really take it seriously probably until like 2016 when I had some friends that kind of said, "No, you should you should actually look at this." Um, so then I I you know started reading more about it on Reddit beyond just the, the funny memes um, and spend more time talking about it and, you know, have a very similar story to most people about going down the rabbit hole. And then uh, as the space kind of exploded in 2017, um, you know, I had been 
investing in or, or, or buying some Bitcoin, um, you know, prior to that. And as the space started going crazy, I was getting personally more and more excited about it. And being at Goldman, uh, you know, there were a lot of clients that started asking about it. Um, just curiously, like, what is this thing? I, everyone's talking about it. I need to know. And as you probably remember, 2017 was, you know, peak hype cycle uh, where every everyone in your grandma was asking uh, about Bitcoin and, and what it was and what it meant. Um, so having all these clients reach out and, and ask about it. And then I was kind of sitting there excited, um, hoping that Goldman would... Um, would take it seriously, would, would make moves, would have resources for clients. And unfortunately in, in 2017, they, I guess, were forced to basically have a, a call with clients, the investment strategy group, giving Goldman's, Goldman's view on, uh, on, on Bitcoin and on cryptocurrencies as an asset class. And it was, uh, I guess, short-sighted to say the least. Um, it was a lot of the, the classic, um, arguments that I felt were just ignorance, you know, all oh, blockchain is cool, but crypto is uh, not viable. You know, that, that yeah, I still remember the whole blockchain, not crypto movement. That was it. That was, that was a big one. Exactly. And, and so they, they, they definitely highlighted that and they spent a lot of the presentation talking about why cryptocurrencies fail as um, a currency and, and, and really getting into the technicalities of, it failing as a medium of exchange, a unit of account, a store of value, and all of its um, security vulnerabilities. So again, it was the same thing. They're looking at exchange hacks and and basically saying, well, look, the, it's not even secure. While obviously, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain has been secure throughout. Um, so a lot of a lot of uh, the classic arguments that I felt were short sighted and not very well researched. Um, at, of course, it was 2017. So, um, you know, it was early days, so maybe we can give them a little slack, but I, I was just disappointed personally. Um, and I felt like there was a lot of interest, uh, in the space and that Goldman was not, not taking it seriously and not, not, not only not taking it seriously, because obviously it's difficult for them to provide investment resources for such a new asset class being such a large firm, but to not even really provide information or, or just write it off completely was, was kind of disappointing to me. So at that time, I mean, I was getting more and more excited about it uh, at the same time that Goldman was kind of down downplaying it. Um, and I had a few colleagues that worked with me at Goldman um, previously that were also excited about it. Those were some of the guys that, you know, first got me uh, excited about crypto. And so we, we started talking and as the space was expanding beyond just Bitcoin, um, we wanted to create uh, an easy, uh, investable product. I think our ideal situation would have been something like an ETF, uh, you know, a passive investment vehicle uh, holding a basket of cryptocurrencies. Uh, but obviously, at the time, with the regulatory environment, uh, that was not possible. ETFs uh, have a ton of, of regulatory hurdles that are required to actually get one through. So we quickly shifted to uh, a vehicle that we could um, launch immediately with with very little uh, regulatory requirements. And that's obviously a hedge fund, which is how the majority of um, crypto, the crypto asset management space uh, ha has used hedge fund vehicles um, because they're less regulated. They're, they're more limited in that only accredited investors can participate. 
Um, so unfortunately, you know, we couldn't really have retail folks uh, coming in, but uh, that vehicle allowed us to launch that index, you know, passive product, but in a uh, private placement uh, vehicle. So the the original, I guess, vision for Crest and crypto, at least, was, you know, to, to give, you know, I guess, uh, investors exposure to this asset class via an, an, an index, right, as kind of the starting point. But you know, what was the, you know, kind of the full original vision, right? When you first started Crescent, you know, what, what were you looking, you know, when, when you closed your eyes and thought out, thought about where the company would be in two or three years, what, where did you, where did you think Crescent would be and, and how did your vision and, and the vision of the team evolve over time? Yeah, I think we, we were always looking at what we did at Goldman and, and that foundation that it created for us and, and thinking that more white glove service uh like what we provided at goldman like that outsource cio model that i that i talked about um it was something that didn't exist in crypto and something that uh we thought we could bring having you know spent so much time at goldman uh, between between all of us um so uh you know i think the original vision and even the the first fund that that we launched our goal was really to get these traditional investors, uh, high net worth and institutional investors that uh, invested across multiple asset classes that didn't have any exposure to crypto, that were interested in it, but didn't know how to get access to it, give them an easy way to get involved. Um, That was our first fund. And and that is what we kind of looked at as the gateway into the space. You know, here's a basket of cryptocurrencies, the majority of it being Bitcoin and Ether. Um, and then a few other smaller, smaller cryptocurrencies, and this will give you long exposure to the space. It makes a lot of sense being a less, uh, less correlated asset class, um, great portfolio diversifier. And then, um, you know, longer term, the vision was to build out a, a bigger platform uh, that would include additional strategies and more of that OCIO type service where we could um, design custom uh, investment solutions for those clients, depending on their risk tolerance and their investment goals. So, you know, the most basic uh, investor may just want an all Bitcoin uh, type portfolio. Maybe they want to do some lending in addition to that. A more complex investor may want to own a bunch of smaller cap cryptocurrencies in addition to participating in DeFi and uh, at the time, I guess in 2017, ICOs and uh, other other things of that nature. So, um, uh, and even the derivatives markets, which have grown, you know, substantially. So we, our goal, and, and as we built out the index fund over, you know, a year or two, I spent a lot of time, you know, forging relationships with the different platforms, OTC desks, exchanges, uh, and that really allowed us to have a great network to, to offer all the services to investors that that they could want and and that was in the effort of achieving that longer term goal of being able to have a platform uh where investors could get exposure to everything and anything crypto related so when you started with you know the the index you know the passive fund what is the pitch that you were making right when you were going out to a family office or you know, some other type of fund or institutional investor, what, what kind of pitch were you making? And, you know, what, what is the argument for using an index as opposed to these, you know, these, these, for example, family offices going out and getting, you know, buying crypto directly and getting their own exposure? You know, a lot of, a lot of the people in the space will go, you know, not your keys, not your coin, but certainly that's not, 
you know, that's not the top priority for everyone. So, so why do people choose to put their, you know, money behind an index product? Yeah, I think the thought, especially in 2017, 2018 at the time was so many people that we were talking to were saying like, there's all these coins. What do I invest in? I mean, people are making money all over the place and, and they weren't really sure how to approach the space. They were interested in it, but not really sure how to approach the space. We were, we, you know, I personally have always kind of been a, a Bitcoin maximalist. Um, I think a lot of these other projects are really interesting um, and, uh, and have their own merit, um, d- obviously depending on the project. But, uh, you know, so we always talk to them about why Bitcoin was, was great to have in their broader portfolio. The pitch basically was that cryptocurrencies are a less correlated asset, like I said. And when, when you're building a diversified uh, portfolio, global portfolio that, that uh, crosses equities, fixed income, real estate, hedge funds, private equity, you know, this is an asset class that it makes a lot of sense to include in there and, and drawing the parallels to gold as everyone has done. So. That was, you know, we were really selling the crypto space as a whole. And, and that pitch is, has changed over time a bit, as in 2017, you know, a lot of retail folks were more interested in the crypto space. While, you know, as time has progressed, it, it, it's gotten more sophisticated. Um, but the index product was really a way for you to get exposure to the space. The benefit was, look, the majority of these other cryptocurrencies, probably 99% of them are going to go to zero. We have an index fund. It has multiple criteria that coins need to meet in order to get uh, added to the to the index. And as coins no longer meet those criteria, they're sold and we rebalance the index on a monthly basis uh, to uh, move coins in and out of that index. So this is a way that you don't really have to uh, actively manage it. Obviously, you're going to get the, re- the returns of the general crypto market as a whole uh, or close to it. Um, that was obviously the goal, and, and the index made up generally seventy or eighty percent plus of the total market cap uh, of the space in terms of you know representation of exposure. So it, it was just uh, like I said, it was kind of that gateway product to get people into the space. And for us, coming from Goldman and with clients that were really just learning about the space, I would probably say Bitcoin is probably the easiest thing to get someone to you know to buy into because you just have to explain. Uh, one thing, but an index product is also pretty easy to explain. You can draw parallels to the S&P 500 and crypto is a growing ecosystem. And there's all these different blockchains that do all these different things. And an index product, again, you're going to have mostly Bitcoin exposure, which you understand. But then uh, you have the rest of the portfolio. You can kind of look at it as liquid VC um, in these new tech projects that are interesting. And some of them really may perform very well. Um, some of them are going to go to zero and we're going to rebound the portfolio. But that, that was the point is that we'll be rebalancing for you. And the other big piece was the fees are low. There are so many other crypto funds out Funny, that was actually, I was about to hop in and ask that question. <laughs> what, right. what is the fee structure like? And, and did that evolve over time or has it evolved? Yeah, the fee structure was a flat management fee. There was no performance fee. Mm-hmm. And really my thought process through this was you know, there's all these other crypto funds out there, especially in 2017, the amount of crypto funds that got launched were, you know, in the hundreds um, over the course of a few months. Um, and and most of them were college kids in their parents' basement. Um, and that's a, a metaphor everyone uses, but 
you know, being at the actual crypto conferences and meetups and talking to people, you met 10 of those guys in, in you know, it's a single night. So it really was, there were just so many funds out there. There are other- guys who bought the ETH ICO, right? And, you know, <laughs> exactly. and, and then yeah. moved, moved money around to other shit coins. Right, exactly. And we're just, you know, could show people, hey, I made a lot of money and, um, you know, I, I can manage your money now and are trying to, to leverage up. And I, I understand that, um, but I think a lot of them didn't even a lot of them didn't even have finance backgrounds. I feel like most of them had either tech backgrounds or were enthusiasts. Um, but a lot of those funds were investing, like you said, into shit coins, reinvesting ETH, uh, ETH proceeds into into other coins, and were charging really large fees. And I think over time, it was pretty clear that a lot of them were benchmarking themselves to Bitcoin and didn't want to underperform Bitcoin because as people looked at these funds, they were like, why would I pay two and 20, pay this 20% performance fee uh, when you're not even performing uh, up to snuff with Bitcoin? Um, And, you know, after the initial ICO boom, that was basically the case um, for all of 2018 and and 2019, um, where Bitcoin was was outperforming. So I think that um, that made it difficult for investors to look at these products. And we kind of came in and said, look, this index product is, is a management fee only. Um, it started at like 2% and depend, it had uh, fee breaks depending on how much was invested. Um, and I think it went as low as 1%. Um, so, you know, paying 1% for uh, this basket was a pretty cheap way, especially with, you know, crypto being a new, a new space. Uh, where there's some more fees than in the traditional space, even just trading and custody and admin, et cetera. Um, so it was a lower cost option for people uh, versus a lot of other active funds that were closet Bitcoin uh, funds and were charging much higher fees. So that was kind of the that was kind of the pitch for that initial. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I you totally hit the nail on the head there. I mean, so many funds have just switched or switched in 2018, 2019 to just holding long exposure on Bitcoin and investors were paying two and 20. And it's it's funny, we had uh, one of my good friends, James Zhang, who runs uh, Black Panther Capital, uh, which is they have two crypto funds of funds. And he, he pulled his money out of a lot of funds because they were just like 80% Bitcoin. He's like, I'm not paying a 20% performance fee for somebody to hold Bitcoin on my behalf. Um, well, that's the problem. A lot of a lot of people in the down market, especially when all other crypto assets were not performing well, um, a lot of people switched into Bitcoin because they didn't want to underperform Bitcoin because that's hard to hard to justify with investors. Uh, and then as other, you know, there's been multiple manias in crypto, but as there were other fads that came through, you know, the exchange tokens or, you know, today, DeFi. Um, they'll now that the market's doing better, they'll rotate into those assets. Um, and then when markets sell off, they rotate back into Bitcoin. So um, I think to your point, exactly. Uh, a lot of times the value just wasn't there or some investors didn't feel it was there, especially during the crypto winter. So one other thing that you mentioned that was interesting was just choosing coins for the index fund and and shuffling in and out of specific assets. Was that just a matter of you know looking to have assets that, that captured that top 80% in market cap? Or was there some, you know, w- w- was there some analysis that you were doing into determining whether you wanted those coins to be part of the part of the index? Yeah, I mean a big part of index investing is that it's not taking input from 
myself. Um, you know, it's it wasn't an actively managed fund. So the I guess the active part you can consider is the d- design of the index, um, which, you know, we spent a lot. I spent a lot of time on. We did back testing and uh, there were multiple different criteria that coins needed to meet. But I wasn't looking at a coin and saying this is good or bad. Uh, it was really the creation of that criteria that I did up front that made that determination. And those criteria were pretty simple. They were uh, market cap size, uh, 30-day average trading volume. So looking at you know the liquidity and making sure that they were liquid, we didn't want to own. Uh, I, I wasn't going to buy a, a coin into the fund that wasn't liquid uh, and, and I couldn't sell out of in, in, during the next rebounds, right? Custody was another big one, especially at, at the beginning back in 2017. You know, there wasn't cold storage options for every cryptocurrency. Um, I, I would, you know, the majority of them didn't have cold storage options. Uh, there weren't any custodians at that time. So, you know, the, or well, I should say there weren't any uh, custodians that custodied multiple cryptocurrencies the way that we needed to for this, for this fund. There were, of course, you know, the, the Bitgos and the Zappos of the world that would hold Bitcoin even back then. Um, but we, uh, you know, we didn't want to use a custodian until probably 2019 when Coinbase and a few others got that trust charter and became qualified custodians and started custodying um, multiple crypto assets uh, in true cold storage environments. So how were you custodying the assets then? We actually, uh, we hired a security consultant um, who was kind of a crypto OG um, that had been around for a long time. And he helped us design an infrastructure to custody these assets in in a way. So really it was using a combination of air-gapped devices and uh, and geographical diversity um, for for private keys and, and other encryption techniques. But it was, you know, I don't want to say rudimentary, but it was the best way to do it at the time. It was, you know, the gold standard. Uh, everyone did that. Did that scare did. you? Uh, you know, at first it didn't. Um, be, well, I don't think it ever really scared me because we did have a really robust process uh, of checks and balances and um, sharding and and making sure that there wasn't really reducing our points of failure um, and our uh, limiting our attack surface. Um, so I always felt comfortable with, with our security. Um, however, as the funds did start to grow, you know, when you have millions of dollars and tens of millions of dollars, any in crypto, I think just generally it's, it's, it stresses anyone out a little bit, even to the point you made earlier. I mean, I know not your keys, not your coin, just being, you know, in the crypto space a long time myself. Um, so there's always that risk in the space, especially when when using any custodian. I feel we've done all the due diligence. I spent so much time due diligencing every custodian out there and looking at balancing, you know, security and fees and making sure that we were being as secure as possible. Um, but there's always that risk in the crypto space. It's just the nature of the space. So uh, there, there's always some level of worry there. I think it's really just about minimizing it as best we can. And I think moving on to a custodian platform in 2019, so that was like a year and a bit into our time, it made me feel more comfortable, um, especially because some of these guys have insurance and I feel they're reputable. And in the case that there was an issue that um, they would do the right thing. 
but it, it's definitely th- that piece of it was always uh, always a sticking point. Yeah. And so what was the fundraising environment like when Crescent first started in 2017? And how did that change in, over the years, both in terms of the types of investors that were approaching you um, and that you're reaching out to and also the propensity among those groups to invest? Yeah. So I touched on this a little bit earlier where like in 2017, it was it felt mostly retail driven. Um, the inquiries that I saw from institutions were exactly that. They were basically just inquiries looking for educational resources. Um, it, similar to, you know, I think Goldman's view on it at the time, a lot of people weren't taking it seriously. And honestly, I kind of felt like it was justified. Um, institutions, when they're looking to invest in such a new space, that doesn't even have uh, custody solutions that are easy and secure. I think that's going to be a hard, a hard sale, right? Um, so I, I totally understood. Uh, so back in 2017 and beginning of 2018, most of that, most of that was that was that a big part of the pushback that you're getting the custody issue. Um, it was always a, a big question, a big topic of conversation. I don't think um, most of those people didn't. We didn't go through like the sales process with them and they were like, yes, I'm I'm ready to sign. And then we talked to them about custody and they were like, oh, that's going to be the breaking point. I just think it was that was one of many uh, issues. It was an overarching issue. Exactly. I think I think it was just an overarching issue of the space was new. People and institutions didn't even fully have their minds wrapped around just what Bitcoin was even at the time. And there wasn't really anyone coming out and there weren't any institutions coming out and saying, hey, we're we're doing this. I mean, look at 2017. Grayscale was the largest asset manager in the space. They had like I think 200 million in assets in 2017. They're sitting at over 4 billion today, right? I mean, three years later, uh, from 200 million to 4 billion. I, I think it just it just shows how drastically that fundraising environment has changed. Um, you know, the crypto asset management space in 2017 was really small besides the OGs like Grayscale, Polychain and, and like a few others um, who maybe had more than 50 million in assets. There were, again, a bunch of these small funds that were, you know, less than five million in assets, us being one of them at the beginning. Obviously, um, you know, we, we launched the fund with a few million, uh, a few million in assets on at the beginning. So, uh, you know, I think that has definitely changed over time, right? Over these three years, I think the addition of custody, I think the, the improved exchange experience and reduction of exchange hacks and some of the negative press that, that Bitcoin had gotten in the past has kind of been pulled back a little bit. There has been institutional investor interests. You know, most recently we saw Paul Tudor um, and, and others come out and say that they're interested in the crypto space. They've invested in the crypto space. They're holding Bitcoin. And I, I think Grayscale is a perfect example of, of looking at their AUM today. Uh, I still think the asset management space as a whole is still small in crypto um, beyond you know Bitcoin only funds. And, and you could even see that in just looking at Grayscale as kind of that barometer. They have 4 billion in the Bitcoin fund and their index product has 50 million. So that's a huge contrast, right? And I, I think that speaks to the fact that a lot of institutional investors, even today, that may be a little more comfortable with the space, 
are really focused on Bitcoin. And so the big dollars, the big money coming in is going to flow towards towards Bitcoin. Uh, I think over time, uh, the asset management space will grow as the space matures and it's uh, there's more clear use cases beyond just Bitcoin. But I think in the meantime, a lot of the hedge funds out there are, are kind of niche managers, the majority of them being under 50 million in AUM. There, there's you know probably very few 50 or 100 million plus. And, and I feel like anybody that 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 gets above that 50 million, 100 million dollar scale is is also not just a hedge fund. They're also doing venture investing and a bunch of other different things. Like I, I don't feel like there are very many, if any, funds that are over that 100 million dollar, you know, mark that are not also doing venture investing at this point. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of funds also just aren't scalable uh, in such a such a small market as this. Right. So you have quant funds and others that are going to cap their um, their AUM because they might they might have a strategy that works really great with $10 million. But if you put $100 million into that strategy, it's not it's not going to work as well. Yeah. I mean, one of uh you know, one of the uh, one of the bigger quant funds in the space, you know, had 50 million in AUM turned it into 130 and returned 80 to their customers, uh, to their to their LPs and their GPs because they're just like, I can't, I can't trade this. Um, yeah. I just my strategies are just they, they won't work. So so certainly. But one thing you hit on there um, is is grayscale. And, and so my question around grayscale is how much of the money going into grayscale is do you th- is, is because of people's actual underlying belief in Bitcoin and how much of it is because of the premium to nav. So to anybody listening who doesn't understand, basically Grayscale is a, is a product um, or GBTC is, is, a, is a product offered by a company called Grayscale, which is owned by Digital Currency Group. And it basically is, is a, a, a product that you can put, you know, either, you know, money in, or, or in-kind Bitcoin into, uh, and then it gets traded OTC. And, and right now it's trading at a 20 or so percent premium to the net underlying value of that Bitcoin, but in the past it traded a hundred percent premium, right? So if, if you could, you know, if you if you invested, you know, one Bitcoin in it, all of a sudden you have the equivalent of 1.2 Bitcoin because of that premium. Um, and so how much how much do you think that is people just taking advantage of the difference between the the lending rate, um, you know, at a place like Genesis and and the actual um, you know, premium, you know, at Grayscale and how much of it do you think is just raw interest in getting exposure to Bitcoin? Yeah, I think a lot of it is is the um, is the premium trade uh, that's been around for years. Uh, so I, I totally agree. It's it's not necessarily the perfect comparison because of that. The numbers are definitely skewed a little bit because uh, because so many people are investing into the Bitcoin and Ether uh, uh, grayscale product. I mean, Ether so, had a had a premium of nine hundred percent. Yeah, it's down to twenty or so now, but it was up at nine hundred. Yeah, and obviously the the reason um, the Ether product got so much attention was because of that 900, 700% to 900% premium. Uh, and that was really when the fund first uh, opened up after their one-year lockup period. So there were really uh, very few shares in circulation, which resulted in that huge premium. And since then, uh, many more shares have unlocked um, meaning that the one-year lockup period for inve- for initial investors uh, has ended and they can then sell their shares on the secondary market. So that obviously has brought that premium down. I think that the premium we can look at for Bitcoin, which has a longer track record, had compressed and I think it's averaged something like 10 to 20%, probably the higher uh, end of that range. 
but over the past year or so, um, that that premium has come down to less than 10% pretty regularly. So, but I think there's still been uh, demand for uh, that product. Uh, so I think that's a good sign. I think that it still uh, holds water that their AUM growing so drastically, even when the premium has been small, just speaks to that there's yeah, I think it's a good de- point. There's definitely demand there still. And I, I think it, that will continue to be the case, uh, honestly, I, I do. And I think the Ether product also grew very rapidly um, at the beginning, I think for the same reason, because that that huge premium was there. Um, but it will be interesting to see as that premium compresses if there's as much demand there as there has continued to be for the Bitcoin product. I, I wonder if that's also going to lead to investors increasingly looking towards other types of hedge fund products if that premium um, you know, continues to go down. Funny enough, actually, GBTC at one point uh, in 2016, early 2017, was actually trading at a discount to NAV. So you basically were getting free Bitcoin buying it, but it's it's. Uh, I think it's that was for like one day country. though, or something, right? That, a couple days. I think a couple it only days, did it yeah. for a couple days. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I see that sustaining. I I wouldn't guess that would sustain over any any significant time period, just because obviously it's the free money. It, it's free money. It would go the other. <laughs> so. So what were the uh, the biggest challenges when you initially launched um, Crescent Crypto and, and what type of challenges did you experience along the way launching and managing the fund? Yeah, I think this speaks to the same thing we were just talking about around just the size of the asset management space. I think it was capital raising. You know, the the asset management space for crypto is is small. Um, and, and, you know, considering our first product was an index product and you can see Grayscale, who's the largest uh, asset manager in the space, their index product only is 50 million. Um, you, you can imagine, and that's three years later, um, you can imagine how hard it was to, to raise capital. Even Coinbase tried to launch uh, an index product back in 2017. And I think if my memory serves, I think they soft circled something like $9 million um, for that fund before they decided to scrap the project because obviously Coinbase is a huge firm, uh, an index product with a 2% management fee um, on a $10 million fund. Is yeah, you're covering one salary. Not even. <laughs> I mean, the, the, yeah. the cost the, the cost that they paid their legal right. team just to do the research to, to launch that product was probably more than they would make, um, you know, in a year off of those management fees. Um, so I think the, the bottom line is that it's it's re- it was really hard capital raising in the space, trying to get people just bought into crypto as a whole. And that's what we were really, that's what I was really selling uh, with an index product. Um, uh, but I think, you know, the as time goes on, um, I am excited about the asset management space. I think that the trend that we're seeing with different firms building out prime brokerage desks, like we've seen Genesis acquire, um, you know, uh, a custodian and building out their, uh, lending and borrowing desk and their uh, derivatives uh, uh, trading. Yeah, um, they also bought Q for uh, smart order routing and things like that as well. Right, exactly. And then Coinbase, similarly uh, acquiring Tagomi. Um, you know, they have obviously the their their huge custody arm. They have Coinbase Prime, which is uh, you know their OTC and institutional trading. So I think um, you know that that's exciting to see uh, the growth of 
kind of that prime broker, which is what I had dreamed of from the beginning. You know, that that's a great business. It, it's, uh, it makes fund managers' lives so much easier uh, to have things integrated. Uh, and it makes sense for those firms because you're going to attract more capital to your platform if you're if you have these additional services. I know personally, I loved using those guys because there were so many services wrapped into one platform. It just made my life easier. Obviously, you have to be careful with counterparty risk and such because, again, in the crypto space, that's always a concern. But the 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 growth and competition in that space is really positive. And on that roadmap, you know, those guys are going to add cap intro platforms where uh, I already have spoken to, to different folks at those firms that have said institutional investors, when they're coming into the space and interested in allocating capital, who are they going to call? They're going to say, oh, Coinbase is, you know, the biggest firm in the space. Let's call them. Well, Coinbase doesn't have any asset management uh, capabilities today. But it makes sense for them too, because they have these huge folks coming to them and asking, hey, I want to allocate to the space, but I'm not really sure how to do it. So Cap Intro is the easiest way for Coinbase to get involved there where they can introduce uh, these uh, interested investors to uh, either other crypto funds um, or other, other, uh, other platforms that may be helpful to them. And then in the future, it would only it's only logical that they'll want to add on asset management services uh, additionally because why are you going to continue to pass those investors off to other people when you can potentially monetize them with your you know with your brand and with your platform um so i think we will see in the next few years these large platforms as they build out their prime brokerage services uh, start to include asset management products um, as part of that. So I think that was the biggest challenge for us as a small firm was raising that capital uh, in, a, in a difficult fundraising environment, especially, you know, 2018 and the first half of 2019 um, being crypto winter. And then secondly, I think starting a business is just hard. Um, you know, I think I think being an entrepreneur is, is hard. You're going to have disagreements with your co-founders and differences in vision and dealing with um, raising venture money. And, and then, you know, that's a double-edged sword as well. You're going to have conflicting views and opinions from those investors that you have to, that you constantly have to juggle. So I, I think that's, that was a huge learning experience and one of the biggest challenges that we, that we fought through. And, you know, I've been reading this great book called The Founder's Dilemma, which basically talks about all of those things. It was written by a, a Harvard Business uh, School professor um, that did this study over 10 years, uh, I think with like 10,000 startups and talking to founders and analyzing uh, difficult situations between co-founders and with investors and, and going through all of those different scenarios. It's a great read for an entrepreneur. Um, but those are a lot of the challenges that you face with, with starting a business in addition to actually making the business successful with capital raising and all the you know product development and all the other challenges that are there. So those two are probably the, the ones that stick out to me the most. And so if you could go back to your first day launching Crescent, what piece of advice would you give yourself? I think it's really creating a, a shared long-term vision. I think we even talked about it before. Like, you know, I, I, the space is so fast moving um, that you can get, it's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to take a different path um, or, or run to the hot, thing. You know, whether it's in 2017, 
we 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 honestly I I spend time talking about ICO consulting, which you know at the time everyone was doing ICO consulting. Everyone was trying to do oh like there's money to be made here. Let's help people understand how to launch a token. Uh, while we were doing the you know the fund was the primary business. These were things that were up on the whiteboard that we were talking about and spending time thinking about. And of course, it's good to brainstorm and and you know build that business plan. But I really think creating a long term vision sticking to it and and executing is really important. Of course, you have to still try other things and explore new business opportunities, but be don't preventing yourself from getting distracted by low probability opportunities or the the hot the hot thing at the moment, um, I think is really uh, important and and communicating with your partners, whether they're business partners or um, strategic partners or even just between co-founders, communicating, a ton up front and drawing out that business plan and then executing on that, I think is, is key. And that's one of the, I think, biggest takeaways that I've had, um, going through this experience. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly agree with you there. I mean, there have been, there's just so many, there's so many distractions in this space and just so many things where it's like, Hey, are you yield farming? Like, are right. you doing this? Are you buying into these IEOs? The and like, the FOMO I, is real. The FOMO it's, is real. It's, it is most definitely real. And like, I'm like, I have so much exposure to crypto as a, as a founder of a data company. Like I'm just like, yeah. I'm staying away as much as I want to be part of all that. Like, and it's hard to, to not do it. And my friends are like, Oh, I'm making, you know, 37,000% annual yield. I'm just like <laughs> taking this a day at a time. Like let's, right. uh, you know, let's take a step back here, you know, assess what's, what's actually going on. And, and I, there's certainly a trade-off between, you know, short-term making money off of, you know, things that you know are complete nonsense that are eventually going to go to zero and, you know, actually building a long-term sustainable business. Totally. And, and I mean, you, you know it as well. I mean, those 30,000 annualized, 30,000 percent annualized yields are- There's a reason they're that high. And they're available <laughs> for a day or two days. And, and there's yep. obviously a ton of risk associated with, with doing these things. So it's, it's, it's exactly that. Like, it was the same in the ICO boom. It's like, oh my God, if we launch a token, we can raise $10 million and we can use it for whatever we want. We can raise $10 million and give ourselves 80% of the tokens, which are valued at $200 million after launch. Right. So I mean, <laughs> the, the money grab was, is just, and, and the FOMO is just so real. I think for, for me, and, and just again, it, coming from Goldman and, and that kind of foundation that was set, it, my thought process has always been, you know, having that long-term macro focus, not trying not to get distracted by these um, short-term, you know, explosive uh, niche investments um, and just keeping on that course. And I think that's an important, an important thing for a lot of people to stick to because a lot of folks dive into those things. They hear the FOMO, they dive into those things. And most people make money. There, of course, are sophisticated folks that that do make a lot of money on these things. Um, but the majority of people don't. Um, and I, I learned that the hard way myself. I mean, back in 2017, I 100% bought a, 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 few, a handful of shit coins and lost all my money. But I think it's a right of path. What, what was the shittiest of the shit coins that you bought? Oh, man. <laughs> One coin that we still joke about forever uh, with some of my friends was Dubai coin. I don't even know what that <laughs> thing is. <laughs> I don't, you I don't even, Dubai coin? No, no. I, I actually didn't buy that one. That's just that's okay. the biggest the biggest joke that we have uh, 
among the group. Oh, uh, oh, my biggest one was personally was Archain, um, which uh, was actually a really promising project, had a lot of great people involved. And basically, it was mismanaged. And uh, they spent they spent the majority of their treasury on uh, I think it was called R music or something. They bought music rights <laughs> for like $20 million at oh, concept to, to put music on the blockchain music rights oh, onto the blockchain. Ooh, and, and this, they literally said this was purely just an example, but they had spent $20 million on this example and basically bankrupted the, Oh, yeah, their, yeah, their yeah. treasury and and so the coin went to zero and then they you know uh the the group that was behind it since there was some really cool tech and some really smart people behind it it re-emerged and is now uh another project that is escaping me um but i obviously was a little uh sour about how the first one uh went down and and the new project didn't didn't assign any tokens to the r chain uh token holders um, uh, which, was, which was kind of disappointing and and didn't feel great, but uh, yeah, you must heard as an art chain maximalist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that was probably my worst. Uh, that that was my worst point, and that one went to zero. So I think I think everyone had to, um, you know, everyone had to learn the hard way uh, with with that space, and I think it teaches you a good lesson. And I had learned that. Years before with stocks, but I think crypto is is a whole new beast, and uh, and and it's a good lesson to learn. The only way you really learn that lesson is by losing money. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's funny that you meant treasury management. It's it's mentioned it. It's not something that I wanted to hop into, but I think one of the biggest things in in crypto and that people don't realize is there really aren't that many you know active managers in the space with a lot of capital, but there are a tremendous amount of token foundations. With a ton of capital, isn't that hilarious? Um, and they don't—they don't—they have no uh, portfolio management expertise. No, and 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 it's it's you know people talk about oh who are the fund managers in, in crypto that have money? It's it's block one, right? It's yeah. EOS, right? right? It is it is. There's there's a there's a token out of Israel called Orbs. They raised a hundred and something million in ICO. Their token is worth I don't know forty million dollars, whatever it is. They're still sitting on something close to a hundred million dollars in cash. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, their treasury is well managed, but the, the, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. So it's funny you mentioned the outsourced CIO role. And I, I wonder if we'll see that emerge because, you know, these foundations that, that raise capital, I mean, they need to, you know, one question I always ask myself is, is when you're investing in a token or, or when people are investing in a token, how often are they actually looking at the, how well capitalized the foundations of one of these tokens are right, like can they continue to do development? And so so managing that foundation is super important. And I wonder if we'll see, you know, as asset management and crypto takes off, you know, some some of these, you know, tokens actually kind of outsourcing the CIO role to, to different companies. It's a great point, and they absolutely should. I think people do look at the treasuries, but it's it's not totally clear. You know, they can look at the the address, the the foundation address. Um and, and Yeah, I mean the problem is people can obfuscate that and can move money into cash and sure. right. It's just well, it's hard. That's exactly my point is that uh that that just shows the tokens that they're holding uh for the project. And I think that's the biggest thing. And uh, I'm not gonna lie to you, we I spent a lot of time talking to these different foundations and and they were one of the clients i was trying to uh sell our our serve that ocio services to because exactly to your point most of them are holding just their own token uh yep. so my point to them 
was, guys, look, there is no treasury in the world that, uh, you know, only owns their own uh, stock or only owns their own product. You need to diversify that, right? And, and that's better for the, the the ecosystem you're trying to build. So funny enough, our chain was one of them that we were trying to implore them that's to funny. diversify away. And um, they- Should have listened to Chris, they, guys. They, now you're getting ousted on the Ties podcast. <laughs> uh, the, our chain's all, you know, all done. So I'm just um, messing. But but yeah, I absolutely think that's something that's critical. And a lot of these, um, a lot of these foundations and a lot of these um, token projects don't really uh, don't really take that seriously. And one of the reasons is because they think that if they sell a lot of their tokens, it's going to look like they don't have, um, they don't believe in their project. And and that is obviously something. That you do have to consider, but I think communicating that to the community in a, in a smart way makes sense. Like, look, we're diversifying our our treasury such that we're here for the long term. If the if so many of these tokens um, have been around for years and have had these periods of, uh, I mean, can you imagine like a, a treasury going out and buying fixed income products because they're like, we want to be really <laughs> conservative managing our capital? Well, we weren't even telling them that. We were like, look. <laughs> We'll, we'll, we'll uh, manage some Bitcoin for you and some other assets that might be less risk than holding 100% of, you know, shit token. Um, and, and that's not to say your project is shit, but it's, look, your project has a low probability of success. You might, there might be a 90% sell off. And then to fund, continue to fund your project, you're going to have to be selling your tokens at a 90% discount to what it was a few months ago. Instead, you know, when at, in, in opportune moments, you can diversify your exposure when the price is good, hold other assets. Uh, or at the very least, hedge. Yeah, or or hedge. There, there's lots of different, and it's the same thing for miners. I mean, you can, you, a lot of these guys don't have, you know, the treasury management expertise that's required, and they have a lot of, a lot of capital on their balance sheet. So I absolutely think that is, um, that is a, an area uh, that, can be improved upon. And I'm sure the larger projects, you know, I'm sure block one has hired um, some serious professionals because they have billions of dollars um, that they, that they're managing and, and making sure that they're being smart with. Yeah. And, and, and just really quickly to add before we continue, I mean, also a lot of these foundations raised Ethereum when Ethereum was at, I don't know if you remember, but Ethereum at one point was at like 1400, 1500, $1,600. Right. Um, and and just never sold out of that Ethereum. Like you can even look at their their wallet addresses. They're just still holding Ethereum. And and you know, maybe they raised fifty million dollars in an ICO, but Ethereum's at what, three, three fifty, three twenty now, whatever it is. So they're down eighty percent. So if they right. raised fifty million dollars, which was gonna I mean, which was an absurd amount, no startup needs to raise fifty million dollars. It's absurd. <laughs> yeah. We've seen that with Quibi, it's just a bad idea. Yeah. You know, especially pre-product, let me add. But you know, but but now they're sitting on, you know, 80, you know, 20% of what they raised at and they went out and hired a staff, you know, assuming the value of, of Ethereum was going to stay at, at that level or go up and, right. and just, you know, being sustainable is is, is nearly impossible. So, but let, let's transition on. So my, my last Crescent related question is, um, why did you leave Crescent and, uh, and, and what is next for you? Do you think you're, you want to stay in crypto? Yeah, so... I, I'm definitely going to stay in crypto. Um, you know, I've spent the last three years uh, building relationships and I can't get out of the rabbit hole. No, I'm obviously very passionate about the space. So I feel like it would, I, I'm just not ready to leave yet. Um, I don't think, uh, 
really what happened was an invest. We, one of our large investors wanted to own more of the company uh, and wanted to take it in a bit of a different direction. I had the opportunity to sell my share and it kind of just made sense as a good time for me to exit. Um, I'm really proud of what I created and accomplished. And I've, I've honestly never learned so much or so quickly in any job or, or school or any experience in my life. And I think that's probably the case with most, most entrepreneurs, uh, most founders. So I think I learned so much that invaluable experience will definitely translate into my next role, whether that's going to be, um, you know, a, I guess, traditional crypto job, quote unquote, or, or starting something new. Um, I definitely have the entrepreneurial bug, the dynamic nature of, you know, starting your own business. There's nothing quite like it uh, where you get to, you know, I was working on raising capital for funds and raising capital for the management company and managing portfolios and product development and business strategy. I mean, that just the, that dynamic nature is so, um, so addictive, but at the same time, starting a business is really hard, like I said, and I definitely have some fatigue after a few years. So maybe, maybe a traditional crypto job for a little while while I, while I figure out what the, what the next, um, what the next step is for me. So if you were to start a new fund today, what types of strategies do you think you would pursue? You know, you mentioned earlier, you know, the interest in, in that outsourced CIO role and, you know, managing different types of strategies for different people. But, you know, personally, what types of strategies are you interested in or, and are you more short or long-term oriented when, when it comes to crypto? Yeah, I think we've touched on this a little bit. I'm, I'm definitely long-term oriented. Um, I, I'm a Bitcoin maximalist mostly. So I, I would probably... Um, the type of strategy I would pursue is probably like a Bitcoin plus fund, as I think it's been called or as I call it um, when, when I'm chatting with people. But really a core Bitcoin portfolio with um, some activity around the edges. So things like lending, right? You could I mean, the annualized rate on, on Bitcoin is fluctuates between four and 10 percent uh, annualized. Um, so that's additional return that, that can be generated for clients. Um, we talked about the grayscale arbitrage trade. That's an additional six to ten percent um, that can be uh, generated every six months uh, on on your Bitcoin uh, holdings. Even things like uh, some options overlays uh, to generate some additional yield for the portfolio. So that's something that I think is simple, is uh, marketable, um, and will outperform Bitcoin. 99.9% of the time, unless there's, you know, uh, an, an issue around counterparty risk or something of that nature. Uh, in addition to, we talked about the OCIO piece. I, I'm still very interested in that. I think um, it requires more resources and probably a bigger organization. So that that might be something where um, I would try and partner with a larger, larger firm to execute on that. But uh, I, I'm definitely still passionate about that as well. And so... You know, outside of outside of Bitcoin and obviously all of the, you know, things that you can do around it, whether it's lending or the, you know, the grayscale arb trade or, or you know, options, where do you think the most alpha in crypto lies? Um, you know, I think... That's a very big question. <laughs> it's a very big, so, <laughs> I said it very quickly, but that's a very big question and there's not one right or wrong answer to it. So. Yeah, I don't really have a great answer. Look, I think there's a lot of fast money to be made in the space. Um, so if you're if you're looking to outperform Bitcoin, 
you know, you can, you can definitely do it if you're really well, if you're really capable of timing these markets. We've seen, you know, the rotation and the flows from Bitcoin to all coins and back so many times at this point. If you're good at reading those and timing those and, and jumping into DeFi early when it's hot and jumping into exchange coins early when they're hot, when Bitcoin's underperforming, you know, during like 2018, like you can definitely outperform uh, you can definitely outperform Bitcoin. You, we've seen it. Um, the ICO boom, DeFi, exchange tokens. I, I'm a long-term macro investor, though. So, I, you know, again, I think there's there's exciting spaces, but there is a ton of risk associated with those. So for me, and my goal is is to get traditional investors into the space. You know, maybe I would play around with my own money. Like I said earlier, I, I, I definitely dabbled in the ICO boom. I think I've learned my lesson for the most part. But I'd be more willing to dabble with small amounts of my own money versus taking uh, investor dollars uh, on behalf of LPs or clients. I have just a much higher bar for me to get comfortable with putting their capital to work in something as risky as DeFi. Um, you know, we've seen uh, during the COVID liquidity crisis, um, you know, maker uh, the the systems were stressed for sure. Uh, make maker that was already seven years ago in crypto. crypto right, years. I know <laughs> nobody even, nobody even remembers that. Um, and I I just think that things like um, the derivative space in crypto, I I think there's a lot of things, and crypto tends to get ahead of its skis. And I think DeFi, I think the the derivative space um, are some of those things that add additional risk uh, to the entirety of the of the asset class um i think the you know the leverage that's that's now been built up in the space definitely uh, makes these moves more extreme and makes these sell-offs more extreme again we saw that uh in the covid liquidity crisis but even even now with when there is a sell-off and then there's um you know cascading liquidity uh crunch with with these margin calls on all these platforms the derivative space is growing so quickly. I mean, I think I saw something like CME and all the non-regulated uh, derivatives exchanges uh, had volumes up 50% in, in August. So um, all of that is, it's exciting and it definitely attracts more people to the space, but it also adds a lot more risk. And I think things like DeFi and ICOs and those have similar feelings uh, to me. Um, brings a lot of excitement and interest, which is good. But at the same time, uh, not only does it bring, you know, additional risks, uh, smart contract risk and counterparty risk and all these other things, there's a lot of regulatory risk associated with it too. DeFi just looks and smells so much like ICOs to me. I think it's... Another- You're preaching to the crowd here, by the way. <laughs> yeah, another cool <laughs> use case. But, uh, you know, the SEC, I just saw Hester Peirce said um, that it's on their radar. No, no immediate plans to regulate the space. But I think down down the line, uh, how can the SEC um, not take a look? And I'm by no. Oh, they, they, cer- they certainly are. I mean, they have their government contract opportunities out from the SEC where they're asking companies to help them monitor DeFi. Right. So they're certainly aware of it. And to think that you're going to skirt around government regulation. Yeah. You no, know, we've seen. You know, it may have taken time, but the SEC is coming back to get at to get at all those token issuers who skirted around, um, you know, you know, and, 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 and sold securities to retail investors. Yeah. And that's been a trickle since 2017, where the, every few months they put out, oh, here's another few that we've, you know, uh, levied fines against or or whatever it is. But 
I mean, they single-handedly shut down the entirety of the ICO space and they have the power to do it for DeFi as well, especially if they basically say that U.S. Uh, investors can't participate in, in decentralized finance platforms because there's no KYC AML. It doesn't comply with all the rules and requirements that are required of exchanges. And I know people will argue and it will definitely be possible to still use them, right? I mean... Tons of people in the U.S. have use a VPN and go onto BitMEX and other platforms that they're not supposed to use, but they do it anyway. So it will still be there, but I think those things will definitely hurt hurt that space. And I just think it's gotten a little too frothy. I think there's, I think it's really cool. Just like I thought, ICOs being a new way to raise capital, extremely exciting, real use case. But again, trying to get totally around those those regulations is, is going to be really hard. So. Again, the long-term mindset uh, that I have just tells me that this is exciting and it's cool, but it's not something that I'm going to be allocating LP capital to. And and yeah, and, and something you hit on just really quick is, you know, the fact that you know the the the, the firms and and the individuals that are able to time these cycles right can make a ton of money, but these cycles to me are seemingly very obvious, right? You know, like we see IEOs become a thing, and then every single IEO kills it, right? And then they start to slow down. And then we see DeFi becomes a thing and every DeFi project kills it. But the thing you have to take into consideration is like, sure, DeFi has more recently been killing it. But, you know, in, in Q2, there were five major hacks of DeFi platforms. Just the other day, Sushi Chef ran off with all the sushi, right? So, um, yeah. you know, just, you know, it, it, as much as people can time things right, there's also just all these inherent risks that... Exactly. Um, that, that these things brings. So my next my next question is, what types of data do you think every fund manager must be aware of? And I know you talked, you know, in terms of managing, you know, external capital, you'd focus more on Bitcoin. But, you know, for your, for your own capital, how are you doing due diligence on a token? And, and, and what do you kind of define as the fundamentals for a token? Yeah, so I guess I could start with the first piece of that on the data. You know, I think the crypto space has so much good data now. I think that's another thing just in the past three years, the amount of data that's come into the space. I mean, obviously you guys, the Thai and so many others included that have uh, been attracted and, and seize that opportunity. It's another thing that's great for fund managers. It really depends on the strategy. Every every Everyone's strategy is going to be different. I mean, it can be as basic as price and volume data, right? That's you know pretty important across different exchanges. Um, real time and, and a lot of people um, take advantage of the inefficiencies in the market. And obviously those opportunities are smaller than they were in 2017. Literally in 2017, I was trading on Gemini and Coinbase simultaneously because the spreads were were so wide. Um, you know, those things don't really exist anymore uh, as easily for, you know, a retail focused investor. Um, but there are still funds that take advantage of those price inefficiencies. So it could be price and volume data. Um, it could be uh, folks looking at, uh, you know, again, the, the derivative space has, has grown drastically. So whether people are doing the basis trade and looking at futures data or are trading options and are looking at open interest and implied and realized volatilities. And then, you know, fundamental macro funds that are more event driven, looking at News like regulatory decisions, exchange listing announcements, security breaches uh, like ex on exchange or 51% attacks, um, partnerships, and then the, the creation of on-chain data, right? So that's something that has really expanded over the past year or two as well. Um, evaluating 
the, the actual blockchain, looking at UTXOs uh, for, for Bitcoin at least, um, and looking at uh, other on-chain activity like active wallets and, and transactions. And obviously different uh, platforms have different metrics that folks are looking at, but I think those are super important. And lastly, probably uh, just in 2020, at least macro conditions, uh, looking at traditional uh, data uh, because you know with COVID, uh, I think a lot of people are looking at Bitcoin and other, I guess, other cryptocurrencies, probably, probably mostly Bitcoin, as um, kind of a hard asset with inflation numbers, uh, you know, starting to inch up a little bit. Uh, monetary policy, looking at monetary policy in the U.S. and globally, unemployment rates, you know, hard assets like gold, Bitcoin are, are much more attractive. Um, so I think that's, um, I think I hit on a lot of the, the the data that I kind of think of when. When I'm looking at, I think you got most of it there, so I give you full credit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, regarding the token diligence, it's an interesting question. I think again, like I, I steer clear of tokens for the most part. There are a few exceptions to that. Um, I think the first thing is is really just what the use case is. I think again, another thing that was learned in the ICO boom is like. There are all these tokens. What are they actually being created for? What is the actual use case for them? And does it does it actually make sense? Um, so I think that's kind of the first and foremost. You, you can see something like Ether and and kind of understand how, how it's this decentralized platform. And, and that's a cool use case that, you know, I think has been more established. Obviously, it's easier to see now a programmable blockchain. Uh, and even, you know, something like ICOs, that, that was a cool use case at the time. So Ether obviously performed well back then because there was more demand for Ether because there was so much activity on, on the platform. So I think that that's an important piece that um, probably is the most crucial that gets overlooked. Then you can look at obvious, um, you know, data and, and different things that can help you analyze uh, if you think that that token is going to accrue value or not. Um, and that's things um, that that's obviously going to be specific to each token. But some of the generic things are the strength of the developer community and transaction volume and, you know, uh, how uh, how much I guess on Ether, like the, how many smart contracts are being deployed. So, it, again, it depends on the um, on the token um, and, and also what kind of partnerships are being created, because a lot of these a lot of these guys really rely heavily on, on creating partnerships with other people to get more and more interest onto, onto their platform. W one funny anecdote, something that um, brought me back to the Archain days was one really cool thing that I thought that they did was they spent, they spent money from their treasury. I think this is something EOS has done too, but uh, basically created like a fund from their treasury to uh, fund uh, development on their platform, basically to attract uh, people to their platform to create new cool things. So that fund uh, from the treasury would evaluate these proposals and these projects and say, okay, we'll give you a million dollars to come and build that on our platform. So I thought that was always a cool, cool use of capital and something again, that would uh, give me some renewed confidence in that there would be a, there was a lot of support around the platform and and could attract real use cases because that's really the the bottom line. Uh, there needs to be there needs to be real use cases for for these utility tokens. Companies. Need to have utility. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly right. 
and, and so there there is utility is the token itself going to accrue value so that like that's a whole that's a whole nother whole, whole nother thing yeah exactly and so uh, a fun final question if you could join as an advisor to any company or project in this space uh who would you want to join like you know what projects have you most excited or or companies for that matter oh man that's a good question i guess i have a few just off the top of my head. I think coming back to the entrepreneurial bug thing I mentioned, I, I think for me, I probably want to work with other founders. So some sort of VC role um, where I can I can work with and help like-minded folks in the space. That's probably, um, if I wasn't going to start my own thing, being surrounding myself with other founders. And I'm most passionate about the financial side of, of the crypto space, obviously. I've talked a lot about asset management and such. So teams that are focused on that space, there's a few smaller firms um, that sound really cool to me um, that, that could potentially be ones that I would love to work with. But it would, yeah, it would probably be smaller startups um, in the asset management or, or finance space of crypto. All right, cool. Well, really, really appreciate you having having you on. This is a great episode. I'm, I, I I have another four hours of questions, but for <laughs> for the uh, for the sake of of yourself and our listeners, you know, I think this is a a good time to to wrap up. But but a final thing is just where can people find find out more about you? Um, where can they follow you on the uh, on the internet? Yeah, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you know, Christopher Matta, um, and I'm on Twitter uh, at Chris. Uh, kryptonite, I believe it is. Yeah, Chris Kryptonite. All right, cool. Well, I'll put that. I'll put that all in the description of the uh, of the uh, of the podcast. And thanks again uh, for coming on, Chris. It was great having you. Awesome. Thanks again, Josh.